0: We're going to turn our attention to Luke's Gospel. We're continuing or jumping back in after a week off last week to our series, Kingdom Come. and We're in Luke chapter 11. We're looking again this morning still at the Lord's Prayer, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, we saw the last couple weeks before this that there are vertical dimensions to how Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer. Specifically, He directs us towards God as he teaches us to pray. Now this morning, we're going to look at the horizontal requests, and we'll see that there's this this beautiful balance. Oftentimes, I think, part of what we do wrong when we pray is that we sort of assume a God-oriented position. In our prayers, we tend to run to those horizontal requests, and we sort of lose sight of the fact that this is a God-centered world. And we're not just praying to God, we're meant to make God the center of our prayers. And that's what Jesus shows us when He he teaches us to pray to a Heavenly Father, and that His name would be hallowed, that it would be glorified and be seen as holy, and that His kingdom would come. It's making God the center of those prayers. Jesus reorients our mentality in that. Now this morning we see that Jesus pivots from praying for God's kingdom, praying for God's glory, to actually praying for our most Basic needs. It's a beautiful reminder of the balance between God's transcendence, that He is holy and large and separate from us, and His imminence. That He is a Father who has drawn near and who wants to meet every need that His people have. The Holy God is our Father. The High King of Heaven knows our needs And reaches out with help. Look with me now at Luke chapter 11. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Now, these horizontal requests we're going to look at this morning, they really break down into three Very easy to identify groups. And rather than overly complicate things, we're just going to make those three groupings our three points this morning. We're going to look at asking God for provision, asking God for forgiveness, and asking God for protection. So first, Jesus teaches us when we pray to our Father in heaven, we should ask the Father to provide. We should ask the Father for provision. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I would not be defined accurately as a morning person. My wife can attest to this. It's just not who I am. I can burn the midnight oil with the best of them. I can stay up to the wee hours reading my Kindle or reading a book. That's no problem for me. The trick is on the other side when the alarm goes off and I'm supposed to get up out of bed. That takes work. And morning people don't understand this at all. I had a friend who was the quintessential morning person. And when Tommy would talk about getting up in the morning, oh, it's the best thing in the world. Oh, I get up and the house is quiet. A lot of times I beat the alarm. Beat the alarm? Like, I don't know that's ever happened to me in my life. And he's just talking about, you know, you get up before the sun breaks the horizon and you start to brew your coffee. And I'm just thinking i got this glazed look. I have no category for what he's talking about. It's because Tommy's a morning person, and I am not. That's just the way I am. If I wasn't so cheap, I would invest in one of those really nice coffee deals that grinds it really fresh in the morning, and I could set the timer and brew it. Because I'm cheap, I don't have one of those. What I'm really waiting for is somebody to invent something that will not actually grind it and brew it, but somehow stream it just right into my mouth without scalding me while I'm lying in bed. (laughs) that would really help me i would be much more able to resist the snooze but that's the reality that the snooze is a temptation for me as a non morning person so on behalf of everyone in the room i thank you tyler for assisting us on sunday mornings this brilliant idea of of serving coffee to serve the non morning people but because i'm not a morning person and because that snooze button's a temptation when i've got an early morning meeting at 6:30 to go meet someone for coffee, it usually means I'm not sitting at the table having a bowl of Cheerios. It's me sprinting down to the kitchen to grab whatever fruit I can find on the counter as I run out the door. My mom was the daughter of a dairy farmer, which if you know anything about dairy farming means you are forced to be a morning person. So every day growing up, 5 a.m., you were in the barn milking the cows. And so for my mom, she transferred that, forced it upon us as kids. You know, Saturday morning, if we were sleeping in at 8, that was basically like we'd slept until noon. Go confess your sin. (laughs) But that wasn't our habit in my house. You didn't run through the kitchen to grab a banana out the door to school, right? We gathered every morning, went through our routine, and had breakfast together. Every morning. And at the end of breakfast, we would read God's Word. And I remember one of the things that we would do as we would read God's words, there was little devotionals my mom would have. And one of them that she had, you're maybe familiar with it, it was called Our Daily Bread, right? Our Daily Bread. It wasn't the most profound devotional you've ever seen. At least I don't remember it that way. But it was practical. It was a practical devotional. And the name of that devotional harkens back to this prayer request. Jesus understands our needs. And he calls us to pray for bread. Now, at the most basic level, praying for bread is about praying and asking that God would provide. More than that, it's about confessing we need God to provide. We need God to provide. It's actually an allusion that Jesus is making to Israel when they were in the wilderness. If you remember the story of of Israel. If if you're not familiar with the story, think Moses and the Ten Commandments movie that used to get shown like two times a year on ABC or whatever channel. That's the story that Jesus is alluding to when when God led his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. It's not just crossing a few blocks. It's not like going from here and crossing Metcalf or, or crossing state line into Missouri and that was the only distance they had to cover. They had to cover miles and miles. In fact, they had to cover an entire wilderness called the Sinai Peninsula. And so this massive group of people ends up in the desert. And when they end up in the desert, they realize they have no way to get food. And so they start crying out to Moses, we're going to starve to death. Why did you lead us? It'd be better if we were back in Egypt. At least there, our bellies were full. You remember what God did. Each day, as an answer to their cry, when they would get up in the morning, the ground would be covered. This white substance that they called manna. It was manna from heaven. It was enough food given by God to sustain them for one more day. See, that was the catch, right? If they took too much and tried to take enough for a couple days, what happened the next morning? It's just full of maggots and rotting. It was an object lesson for God's people. God was teaching them. He would provide. From His hand, each and every day, as He provided for Israel, they knew to trust in Him. And here Jesus echoes that language. Pray that God would supply our daily needs. It underscores the reality that every single day, If God didn't provide, we would go hungry. Now, is that the way we tend to think of it? I I think there is an ancient modern tension, or at least an an ancient Western tension going on here. This is easy to understand in Jesus' day. This is easy for, for the widows in Pakistan to understand. For us, it's harder to conceptualize. We live in the world of Costco and Sam's Club, right? It's not even just that we've got supermarkets that we can go to. We've got supermarkets like Costco where you can buy in bulk. Forget about more than just one day's worth of manna. You can buy a month's worth of manna. Actually, in a month, some of those sizes, you won't even get through them with how big stuff is at Costco. But that's why we sometimes stumble over this idea of praying to God each day to provide. And yet, we do still know what it means. Because every time there's a forecast of a blizzard, what happens? Everyone tears off to Hen House or Target or Costco, and you go and take pictures, and the milk and the bread are completely gone. I don't really know why people do that. Like, for some reason, when snow comes, you need massive amounts of dairy in your fridge. But when those storms come, it, it's like it touches on something, isn't it? Something deep down that we realize. The storms are coming. There might not be access to the limitless food that we always take for granted. And and so we've got to store it up. That's where Jesus instructs us. He calls us. Trust in God. Pray to God. What Jesus is teaching is that we would adopt an anti-Costco disposition. Now, I'm not saying Costco is wrong or that you shouldn't stop, there, shouldn't shop there. Any place that serves half-pound hot dogs can't be inherently evil, right? I'm not saying don't shop at Costco, but this prayer request is a subtle rebuke to our impulse to hoard, which is just a declaration, right? It's just a new way of saying, I don't trust God to provide for tomorrow. More than that, I have to accumulate without any regard for who's doing the providing. You ever walk through Hen House or Costco or Target, and and before you get to the, the checkout line, just pause? Lord God, thank you for this cart. Thank you for this food and the funds to pay for it. I have to confess that's not usually my posture as I'm sitting there impatiently in line at Target, right? I'm, I'm planning it as I approach, like scanning, you know, the game, like which line has the fewest people, but you got to know how to play the game. Cause that might have few people, but that lady has like 17 carts. That's the thing I'm thinking of. I'm not, I'm not thinking of gratitude to the God who provides, but God calls us to seek him daily, to ask. And I think that's why it's good to pray before meals. We pray before meals because it's an opportunity at every meal to pause and to thank the giver of the gifts. So, so don't pray at meals when you're in a restaurant hoping some, some nice older couple will pay for your meal as like a throwback to the good old days. I've heard of that happening. And no, we pray because we're grateful to God. He's provided. I love how Proverbs 30 puts it. Give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, "Who is the Lord?" Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. As a biblical disposition, give me neither poverty nor riches, Lord. Give me enough for my daily needs, but Lord, protect me from having so much that I completely forget you are the one who provides. So we ask God for provision. And then Jesus calls us in the same way not to forget God when we gather on the table. Don't forget God when we interact with one another. He doesn't want us to forget the enormous mercy we've received in Christ. And He doesn't want us to forget that when we're in community. There's a lot of communal elements to this prayer. Have you ever noticed that? Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we forgive everyone who's indebted to us there's undeniable corporate elements to this prayer it's meant to shape how we think about ourselves as the people of god now this is the spot right where everyone gets really tentative when they recite the lord's prayer if you admit it depending on the tradition you grew up in, everyone gets a little tentative when they get here, because no one's quite sure, w- which version are we going to pray here? Is it going to be, forgive us for our trespasses and those who trespass against us? Is it going to be, forgive us for our debts and our debtors? Everyone all of a sudden kind of listens and takes their cue from the loudest voice in the room, typically. You know. So how does that work, depending on the tradition you're from? Is it, is it Lutherans need to be forgiven for poor financial stewardship? Right? So, debts for them, but for Baptists, they need to be forgiven for their sins. How are we figuring this out? Well, both ideas are there in the text. The first reference, the Greek word, actually literally means sins, trespasses. The second word, though, calls to mind this image of being indebted to someone, to owing them. And this is actually really helpful. One of the challenges that we have in understanding just the notion of forgiveness is that none of us really, truly understands the notion of sin, because none of us is God, and none of us is without sin, and none of us is perfectly holy. and none of us is ever the primarily offended party like God is. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, he gives us a tangible way of getting our minds wrapped around the mercy we receive from God. We, we can't fully grasp the enormity of sin. But every human being has an idea and they can relate to money concerns, right? More than that, we can relate to what happens when someone's facing crushing debt. Whether that's happened to you personally or someone who's close to you has gone through it. All of us have some association (coughs) with someone who has significant debt problems. It's a terrible thing. There's just this crushing weight that you feel and sense when you're in debt, right? It just seems to loom over you, just to hang on your shoulders. It hovers. Every credit card bill that comes, the future seems more hopeless. For, for the person in debt, they dread the phone ringing, fearing it, it's another creditor. You know, I've heard of people fearing repossession of their vehicles that get ultra-creative in how they park and, and parking away from their home, trying to hide where their vehicle's at because they fear repossession. It's a terrible way to live. But it also gives us a clear sense of what it means to be forgiven. In Christ, God releases us from all our debts. He, he wipes the slate clean. Everything that we owe and could never possibly pay, God, in Christ, cancels. The image is like God the Father transfers that that million-pound burden, that million-pound debt from our back, and then he puts it on the broad shoulders of Jesus. But that's actually only half the picture. What we see in the gospel, in the forgiveness that God provides, in the nature of how justification works, is that we're not just forgiven for our debts. It's not just like we owe an infinite amount of money that we can never pay, and God comes along and cancels the debt. That's not what happens in Christ. In our forgiveness, when God forgives us, He doesn't just cancel the debt. He then comes alongside and puts an infinite amount in the account. That's what the righteousness of Christ is. God cancels all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of those debts, and He fills our account with all of Jesus' obedience, with all of His perfections. The burden is gone. And there's freedom. And there's joy. You can breathe again. That is what Jesus calls us to pray for. But there's actually also an ethical dimension to this, isn't there? You notice how Luke puts it? Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It reminds me a few chapters ago in Luke 7. Remember the story of of Simon and the woman of the city? Simon invites Jesus over to Simon's house, and he's got the elaborate meal prepared. And this woman, probably a prostitute, walks in uninvited, and every head turns to look at her. And she makes her way to Jesus, and she grabs his feet, and she weeps, and she cries, and she cleans his feet. And Simon is horrified. This woman is in his house. Simon is horrified, and and all the guests are horrified. But Jesus looks at the woman and tells her she's forgiven. The whole point of the story, what's happening there, is is there's this this tension. Simon, in all his self-righteousness, has never felt a true need for forgiveness. And so he has no grace to extend to anyone, not even to Jesus as his guest. That's what self-righteousness breeds. But the woman of the city, the prostitute, she knows a level of debt and shame that would stagger us. And in weeping and clinging to Jesus' feet, she is totally changed by the forgiveness she receives. Jesus asked the question, who will love more? The one who's forgiven little or the one who's forgiven much? The point for all of us is that we, if we truly understand our debts, we know that each and every one of us has been forgiven a massive amount in Christ. That's why we, we did that congregational reading this morning. That's why we did that prayer of confession we, we want to walk out Jesus' instructions as a church to confess our sins before God, to do that corporately as a body. But you notice we didn't just read all the confessions of sins, right? How did we conclude that congregational reading? We heard the words of pardon. We heard the words of gospel assurance that our, our sins and our trespasses have been hurled to the bottom of the sea. And now we have a great high priest, Jesus, who stands before God and guarantees access. We don't have to come before God fearing that he's a creditor waiting to to smash us and call in our debts. We can come to him as a father. Here are the words we, we read again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He'll grind them into dust. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So let us now, with confidence because of Jesus, our great high priest, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. The point of how Jesus prays is that we should come to God confident. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But more than that, we should be changed by having our sins forgiven. This should be a place where where people encounter grace, where they encounter mercy, where fellow sinners come together to bring accountability, and that is a form of grace, (laughs) to point out to each other ways that we're called to live rightly under God's law, like, like Rick showed us last week, but also to apply the balm of the gospel. Lord, save us from ever being Simon's, in this body would that we would be a bunch of women of the city that when we would gather on these days we would cling to Jesus' feet together we would wrap our arms around each other and cry out for mercy and rejoice with each other proclaim to each other as as we sing and, and, and read scripture proclaim to each other That in Christ we've been made new. Finally, Jesus teaches us to ask for protection. Actually, he says we should pray that God wouldn't lead us into temptation, which seems like a very strange prayer request if you really think about it, right? Lord, please don't lead me into temptation. Now, on the one hand, James tells us, right, James teaches us, God never tempts anyone. So, so you have that kind of intention with this progress. Well, that's an odd thing. God never tempts people, right? But if you go back in Luke 4, in Luke 4, what happens? The Spirit comes and leads Jesus into the wilderness. Why? Luke says the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness so that he can be tempted. Well, how does that work? If God never tempts us, why is the Holy Spirit leading Jesus to be tempted? It seems totally contrary to what the prayer is here. Well, part of it is, there's a play on words. That word tempted can also mean tested. That's part of the confusion. In fact, the rabbis used to teach that people should ask for trials. You should pray and ask God to test you. That was what was going on in Jesus' day. It was very common to teach hey you need to ask for tests you need to ask for your abraham and isaac moment so you can prove yourself in the midst of the test in the midst of the temptation that's what the rabbis would teach and they, in fact they looked at a place like psalm 62 where jesus where david is praying and they say what he's praying for there is he's asking for a test and the rabbis then taught what jesus what god provided was the test was Bathsheba. So David prayed for it, and he got the test, and he failed it. And yet the rabbis kept teaching, you should pray for tests. And then you've got Peter's response. If we fast forward in the gospel a little bit, right? The final days, and they're in the garden. Jesus tells Peter that Satan, echoing the image of Job, Satan has asked God for permission to sift him. And you remember how how Peter responds in just such a classic Peter fashion? Essentially, bring it on! I'm ready! I can go go 12 rounds plus one with the devil! That's Peter's response. And again, like David, the results are less than stellar. The request we see here is Jesus recognizing how dangerous our adversary is. Sin isn't something to trifle with. It's not something to toy with. It's something to flee. You don't treat sin, you know know the classic example of, of two people that are dating. You're not fleeing from sin if you're trying to figure out as a dating couple, how far can we go before it's too far? Like, let's just figure out where's the line and then we'll measure and get like a half a millimeter away from the line and still be safe. That's not how you approach it at all. Lead us not into temptation. Empower us to flee from temptation. Genesis 4 says that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Matthew, in his version of the prayer, even adds, Deliver us from the evil one. Peter, no doubt speaking from experience, writes, Be sober minded. Don't be like me. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter has experienced firsthand the way the devil prowls around, that we need to be wary. Don't be cocky. Don't think you can play with sin and not have it affect you. He also notes temptation is is a common fact of life. These kinds of things are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In a fallen world, tests and temptations are a fact of life. But Jesus wants us to fight, firm in the faith that God is an ever-present help in trouble, that victory is always possible. And so Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's not how we think of our temptations, is it? You don't know what she said. And that's what made me respond that way. If you had if she had said that to you, right? Th- that's how we think of our temptations. This is unique. It was bad. I was uniquely exposed. No, no Paul says, actually, not. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's almost like running commentary on Jesus' prayer request. Lead us not into temptation. Be the faithful God. Don't allow us to be be tempted beyond our ability and Lord, with the temptations that the devil brings as we resist the evil one, provide a way of escape. And with that, help us to see in the midst of temptations that what's being promised, what's being offered, isn't really that good. Help us to see, like Eve should have seen, that if, if you peeled back the skin of that proverbial apple. I don't know if it was really an apple, but some sort of fruit. If she could peel back the skin, she would see the worms and the maggots. It's rotten. This isn't what you think it is. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in the screw tape letters. Never forget. This is kind of the elder demon writing to his apprentice. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure, In its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Pleasure is God's business. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is His, God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Lead us not into temptation. Give us eyes to see the temptations of our enemy, that these ever-increasing cravings are for ever-diminishing, empty, unsatisfying pleasures. That's a very helpful perspective. Resisting temptation isn't saying no to pleasure Resisting temptation is saying yes to a deeper joy, to a deeper pleasure. And I think that actually brings it full circle. The exhortation to ask God for daily bread, that, that's not just physical. It's spiritual. The Gospels are replete. They're, they're just filled with references that connect Jesus to bread, aren't they? At the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples what? Take and eat this bread. What is it? It's my body. It's my body, which is broken for you. This is the bread that God has provided. It's me. When Jesus multiplies, right, and he feeds the 5,000, they got the five loaves and the two fish, they're in this desolate place where nobody can get any food, Right? every Jewish person that's hearing that story or heard the reports or was reading it in the Gospels, you know what they're thinking? This is Jesus feeding God's people manna in the wilderness. When he feeds the 5,000, when he multiplies and provides for their needs, this is Jesus playing the part of God Almighty because he is God Almighty and feeding everyone. In fact, we could actually translate Daily bread as essential bread. Give us this day our essential bread. Don't just fill our bellies, Lord. Fill our souls. And there is no bread more essential than Jesus. John 6 tells us, For the bread of God Is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They will always have the best pleasure they desire. I am the living bread, John 6, 51. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that came down from heaven. I am the manna. I am the daily provision, Jesus says. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We can pray, forgive us for our sins. Though they are many, because Jesus, as the bread of life, was broken on our behalf. Behold, John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Flee the lesser pleasures, see them for what they are. Lead us not into temptation. And lead us to the essential bread. So I invite you. Luke's gospel invites you. God's word invites you. Jesus himself, through his spirit this morning, invites you. Come to him and eat. Come to Jesus and know the sweet grace of forgiveness. Come to Jesus and be satisfied never to hunger and thirst again. Would you bow your heads. Father, you give good gifts. And Lord, we want to come and we want to, to bring our, our, our real earthly human requests to you, knowing that your word teaches us again and again and again, you incline your ear to hear us. And so, Father, we come to You with real requests. Lord, I I pray that You would provide for the needs of the people of providence. Lord, provide for us each day. But Lord, You have given us the greatest gift in Your Son, Jesus. Lord God, I pray that this morning would be a sweet reminder, a soul-establishing faith strengthening reminder that You have forgiven us all of our debts, that You have canceled all of our debts, that You have washed us white as snow, and that You have given us the only thing that will satisfy our souls, Your Son, Jesus. So now we ask that Your Spirit would fill us. Lord, make us happy Jesus, in your name.